This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong This is Abraham Goldberg, Executive Director of JMU Civic and faculty member in the Department of Political Science. This is Angelina Clapp, the Graduate Assistant. In this episode, we talk with Lori Rice and Kenneth Moffat, professors of political science at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, about their new book, The Political Voices of Generation Z. We invite you to join the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Lori Rice and Kenneth Moffat, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. I've got the privilege of asking the first question. Who is included in Generation Z? And can you describe factors that have contributed to the rise of political engagement among this age group? So we take a little bit of a different approach to our definition of Generation Z. So scholars often use Uh, the dates that Pew Research Center provides um, that would define Generation Z as born between 1997 and 2012. We actually grouped together in our study younger millennials with older members of Generation Z. And part of our justification for doing that is that rather than just take these 15-year segments and call them generations, we really go back to generational theories from people like Carl Mannheim, who talks about generations being defined by significant events that shape their outlook on the world. And so we make this case really that we really should look at younger millennials and Generation Z members that have come of political age together. So we feel like this age group of 18 to 25 in both 2018 and 2020 share commonalities to give us some insights into Generation Z. And if we look at the behavior, political behavior and interests of those members of Generation Z that have not yet reached political age, they're not yet 18, certainly the next four or five years at least show an indication of having that same sort of mindset and approach towards political participation. So they're active in things like the climate strike movement, and yet they haven't reached voting age yet. Um, So that's a little bit about why we focus on not just those technically part of Generation Z, but expand that out a little bit. In terms of those factors that have contributed to the rise of political engagement, there's a lot of them, but part of it is that um, kind of generational distinctiveness. This is a generation um, that has grown up with social media, and that makes it really easy to find and connect with other people that care about the same causes that they do. Um, so rather than feeling isolated and alone in one's political views, it's very easy to find others who share your views. They also share in common that our society is facing a lot of significant social challenges and political challenges. And this generation feels like older generations who have the political power have failed to solve them. But they're also different in that that government actually should solve problems. 
and they have enough efficacy to think that they can make a difference in government action. Can I ask a follow-up question on just on that point of efficacy? Um, why, what contributes to their sense of efficacy? Or do you, ha- do you have any theories of what might be contributing to their own sense of efficacy? So that's a good question. And I think one part of that might be the social media piece, because as young people try out politics online, they share their views online. There's a lot of research that shows that that's something that's helpful in building efficacy. Um, you make your views public, and if it's a positive experience and you start to connect with other people who share those views, who start to encourage you to take other actions, that efficacy builds. Yeah, and I would add one other thing on efficacy. This cohort also has experienced a series of collective traumas, if you will, including a spike in gun violence, as many of them have or currently are going through school, especially in, say, K-12 through schools. Also, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has affected many in their educational pursuits as well as other pursuits as well. In addition, they're experiencing some of the effects of climate change at a, at a relatively young age. And, and have experienced a lot of those things in ways that, elder, that their elders didn't necessarily experience or haven't necessarily experienced as formative experiences. And there's a fair bit of research on generations in, in politics, which finds that say having these kinds of collective experiences does enhance efficacy and does shape subsequent outcomes down the line. And so, for example, you say take the World War II generation as as an illustration of that point. So I'm curious, um, Lorian, Ken, you were at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. We're at James Madison University, and we work with college students who have come up through a political age, but also we see a good deal of political diversity among them. Um, I don't know if it's the same on, on your campus, but I'm curious sort of where generations can be kind of spoken about and, and, and studied as a block while still recognizing the differences that exist within them. And so to answer one part of your question about about SIU Edwardsville, we also have a substantial variance with respect to political attitudes and opinions and, and what have you. And so, and this is something that a piece of evidence that we did not include in this book, but it's something that we do have. And we have used this data elsewhere. And that is every four years, starting in 2008, we've run the student election survey on our campus. And and one of the things that we found is that there is a considerable amount of variance in students' political attitudes. But at the same time, another thing we've also found, and this is consistent with the underlying literature on on this particular group, Gen Z, that there is a left, there is a little bit of a leftward shift in their views overall, as well as their views on any number of social issues, like say, for example, Black Lives Matter, then you necessarily saw with respect to their elders. And now that we have four election cycles to take a look at that data and be able to say, we can say that. 
You find that a range of issues, things like climate change, immigration, sexual violence, gun violence, and racial injustice and inequities have mobilized young adults. What can we learn from these different movements and the factors that contribute to expanding or reducing political par participation? And does interest in specific issues promote voter engagement among young people? Yeah, so so thanks for asking that question. And, and the answer is yes. Issues absolutely mobilize Generation Z, especially those issues that uniquely impact members of that generation. And so, for example, you can, you can look at, say, police violence and police shootings. These things disproportionately impact young Black males. In addition, you can look at immigration policy. And one, and one part of immigration policy that has been among, among the most hotly contested and debated is the DACA program. And the DACA program affects, fr frankly, young people and many young people who are of voting age or right around voting age. And, and, and many, of those, many of those same people are also affected by Supreme Court nominations. And so we looked at, so in our book, we looked at two Supreme Court nominations, that of uh, Brett Kavanaugh and that of Amy Coney Barrett. And both of these nominations implicated a number of values that Gen Z holds dear. Like say, for example, a belief in gender equality and a, and a belief in racial equity and, and, a, and a host of other beliefs that that younger that Gen Z holds to to far greater degrees than say their elders do, and and so consequently, when members of Gen Z post or participate or participate in protests related to these issues, it spurs political participation and it gets them contacting elected officials. And so, in summary, absolutely yes, interest in specific issues does promote engagement among Generation Z. And the evidence bears that out very consistently. Lori, you mentioned that uh, that social media and online civic engagement may be affecting young adults' sense of efficacy, political efficacy. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you both have found in terms of the link between online activity and offline civic engagement. And how do these forms of engagement offer different means for political voice? Sure. So Gen Z are digital natives. They have grown up in a social media world. They're well connected with others. And so I think it's only natural that as they start to become aware of issues that concern them, that they turn to social media first as a place to express their views. Um, and so it's a natural place to share views on issues that are, matter to them. But then as they do, they become more comfortable with the idea of let's try something a little bit less comfortable, a little bit less natural, like maybe I should go to a city council meeting and speak up about this issue of concern. And not only that, but because they're sharing those views online, they can connect with someone that they might not have ever met before, but who cares about the issue too, and make a plan, let's go together to this meeting that I have no idea what it's like. I've never been before, but I won't have to go alone. And so social media also makes it easy for people who care about the same thing to find each other 
and that can happen both within Generation Z, uh, but also existing interest groups can find people more easily once they begin to share those political views online and mobilize them to take action, invite them to do things like contact their senator or volunteer for a political campaign or make a small donation to a political interest group. So social media also makes it easier for groups to help mobilize Generation Z. Um, so I think those are two of the main pathways that we've seen for engagement. But it's also important to note that um, online activity can look very different from traditional activity. And so some of the very same things that people might dismiss as silly if they're from an older generation, um, you know, a really creative video on Snapchat or TikTok is actually something that leads to greater offline engagement. And so um, I think those of us in older generations sometimes might be quick to dismiss some of this creativity that doesn't make sense to us, but it's really important in mobilizing this generation. I wondered if you saw any trends in terms of a tendency towards greater engagement at the local, state, or national level um, with the impact of social media. In other words, were they more likely to be mobilized into a national movement, um, or was, was it just, or or were they equally likely to get involved in? You mentioned, um, you know, going out to city council. So we haven't done a lot of research yet on the local level. Um, we focus more on the national and the state level at this point. Um, but I can say it does seem to vary issue by issue. So with Black Lives Matter, um, a lot of members of Generation Z decided they wanted to plan a protest in their community. And it might be something that was brand new to them. But there are members of Generation Z that said, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just Googled, how do you plan a protest? And I put a post on social media hoping people would show up. And sometimes thousands of people in their community showed up. So they helped take a national movement and spread it nationally, rather than just being something that we saw in big cities. There were small towns um, that had a Black Lives Matter protest because a member of Generation Z took the time to post online um, and invite people to join them. Um, but then there are other issues on which it really is national organizations drawing people in. I think we saw that a little bit more with immigration um, as an example of that. You mentioned videos on TikTok. I mean, those are also a lot of fun. I can see why those would bring uh, young people and me into, I mean, it's, these are, these are engaging. I mean, would you argue that they're making politics more fun? I would say yes, absolutely. And in, in the, in the lighthearted expression, not just on TikTok, but generally in terms of humorous political expression is connected with higher levels of civic activity. Based on your research, how are young adults sharing their views with elected officials and what impacts might they be having on public policy and are elected officials listening? Yeah, so one way by which members of Gen Z share their views with elected officials is by contacting them. In addition, Gen Z provides a substantial base of the volunteers for campaigns. And, and also, our recent data has come out that Gen Z votes at much higher rates than what their elders did. And in, and in many cases, even their elders at similar life stages. And so, and, and so in fact, the Boston Globe had a fantastic 
article about the recent NSLVE results and about the large spike in, in civic activity and sharing their views with elected officials among Gen Z. And so, and so okay, you asked about whether, whether this has an impact on public policy. And the, and the answer is yes, absolutely. And let's take a couple of examples of issues that did mobilize members of Gen Z, the Me Too movement. And what happened is that as the, as the Me Too movement grew, state legislatures responded with a substantial increase in bill introductions related to topics like sexual harassment, sexual assault, among others. And we also look at Black Lives Matter, which mobilized huge numbers of members of Gen Z. And Black Lives Matter did have legislative successes in some states. And so, for example, you can look at Illinois. You could also look at Iowa. And, and, and a lot of those legislative successes didn't always follow the standard red state, blue state map that, that gets seemingly beaten into our minds in, in, in American politics. And, and finally, the fact that members of Gen Z vote at far higher rates, that gets politicians' attention for one reason, because politicians listen to voters. And if Gen Z is the voter base, that's going to follow not only, say, politicians listening to them, but also politicians incorporating issues that uniquely affect them. Like, say, for example, with student loans or, or, the DACA, or making permanent the DACA program. There's a couple of examples of that. What can institutions of higher education be doing to better facilitate the political and civic agency and efficacy of young adults? And I'm wondering if you can speak to some of the barriers to educating for democracy, both in higher education and in K through 12. Well, I think most institutions of higher education incorporate civic engagement into our mission. Um, but we haven't always been so great at following that mission. Um, the Federal Higher Education Act requires colleges and universities to make a good faith effort to register our students. But for a lot of years on many campuses, that good faith effort was simply a checkbox that could be met by having voter registration tables out one day on campus. I think there's a number of great civic organizations that have started to challenge universities to step up their game and their commitment to civic education, civic engagement, and voter registration, um, such as the All-on-Campus Democracy Challenge. Um, and I think it's important that as more universities participate in challenges like these, that we make sure to have students as an active part of our efforts because students understand how to mobilize other students. And students understand what sorts of pitches are going to be effective in ways that those of us who are older, who are traditionally trying to do the work of mobilizing students, might miss. So what we think might be a brilliant pitch might be something that completely falls flat. And if we incorporate students into our planning, they're going to tell us that. And they're going to come up with things that are going to work better and be effective. So I think it's important that we engage our students more in our efforts at the college and university level um, to engage students. Um, 
I also think it's important that we recognize that this generation is more responsive to this pitch to get involved. They are more civically active than the past two generations. And some of us who have been around a while, who have been discouraged at how difficult uh, it is to mobilize young people and maybe withdrew from that space for a while, if we come back in, we'll discover a very different scenario where it's not difficult to convince students that they should vote and that their voice matters and that it's important to participate. But we do face a lot of challenges um, at the university level and at the K through 12 level in educating for democracy right now. And I think part of that challenge is the highly polarized climate that we're in and the fact that there is disagreement over what's true and what's not true. And um, there can be backlash sometimes for teaching some of those things that are true and that are important to the success of our democracy. At the same time, um, the social sciences and humanities have not been educational priorities in the K through 12 school system in recent years. And instruction has been sacrificed for other priorities but we have to keep in mind that those educational institutions play a really critical role in political socialization especially when it comes to recognizing the value and the importance of democracy and the value of participation and so we need to be concerned about k-12 education um, Meanwhile, many of our K through 12 educators, I think, feel afraid in this political climate and unsupported. And if we want to see our democracy continue to succeed, we really need to invest in good civic education. Lori Rice, Ken Moffitt, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters to share your research and your new book, The Political Voices of Gen Z, published by Rootledge Press. Uh, we are so grateful um, to have your work and, and thank you for, for doing this important research. We ask this final question of all of our guests, what would each of you do to strengthen democracy? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and start this one off. and. Uh, and and, 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 I'll, and, I'll, and I'll go ahead and cheat and not go one thing and I'll go two. <laughs> and, and, and the first one builds right, 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 where, right where Lori left off a little bit. So the first thing I would do is I would make civic engagement, civic education much more robust and much more meaningful at all educational levels. And I think one thing that institutions can do to, to foster that, especially at the college level, require a course on American government and politics as part of their general education requirements. Because some states do, but a lot of states don't. Some private institutions do, but a lot of private institutions don't. And, and, we, and we go right back to the underlying evidence where students who talk, talk about politics in such courses are much more likely to be civically active. Also in such courses, students get a better picture of what government does can, and can do and equally importantly, what government doesn't do and cannot do. And in the process in, in these courses, this can back other problems that we that we see in our society, like rampant misinformation, dangerous levels of being uninformed about politics, 
and, and, where, and where some of that leads. And a second idea, and I've got to give credit where, 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 where credit's due here, to one of my colleagues, uh, Saranjan Biratne in, in my department, who studies uh, ethnic conflict. And, and one idea that, that, they, that he put forth as part of a broader project that Laurie and he are working on is, is the information redirect method. Where, where, for example, if, if somebody is searching for, say, content related to terrorism and extremism, say on Google, what would happen is that Google would redirect them to other resources. Or say, for example, Facebook would or Twitter would if they did the Facebook searches and the Twitter searches. And this method gets used around the world to fight terrorism. And there's evidence that indicates that this works to reduce how much extremist content gets, gets consumed. And we pull that forward and we can do the same thing with respect to, say, fighting against a lot of undemocratic ideas that are that are currently out there and occupy a substantial part of our civic space currently. So my answer isn't a whole lot different from Ken's. I think we need to invest in civic education um, from the K through 12 level all the way up through college and university level. And I would add as part of that, that we need to make sure we include components about media literacy to help people navigate the complicated media environment that we live in today. So whereas young people know how to do fact checking, it doesn't mean they always take the time to do it. Um, and a lot of the media literacy sorts of skills right now are being taught at the college level, but that leaves out so many people who can't afford to go to college or it doesn't fit into their current life circumstances. Um, so all of us need to be able to pre be prepared to critically evaluate information and think about the sources. Um, because not only do we have you know, this complex American media environment, but work by groups like Freedom House shows that various authoritarian governments have also been working to promote the values of authoritarianism over democracy. And some of those ideas are catching hold because people don't realize where they're coming from and don't have those critical thinking and media literacy skills to recognize it. Um, so I think we need good, robust civic education from early in people's education levels all the way up through college and university, and that it needs to include that media literacy. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.